Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we have been exhorted already by your word to live lives of fear. And so I pray that we would understand what that means, that you would illumine our hearts and minds to not just be hearers of this word, but doers of it. And Father, may it be to the praise and glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So note the exhortation of the Apostle Paul, Peter. Sorry, it's a bad habit. Apostle Peter. Um, he describes your Father in Heaven as what? He describes your Father in Heaven, and we spent a lot of time last week thinking about the, God's fatherhood and what that meant. But your Father in Heaven as a judge. As a judge. And what does he judge? It says he judges each man's work. And then it draws the conclusion from that fact that you should, therefore, if God is a father who judges, who judges each man's work, then you should conduct yourselves in fear during your time of your stay on earth. Nisbet, a um, commentator that I've been reading summarizes the meaning of these verses this way. He says, the more acquaintance with the Lord and confidence of his fatherly affection Christians attain to, the more are they obligated to the study of holiness and particularly to walking in fear of offending him who will be sanctified in all that draw near to him. Right? I mean, for some reason, for for modern Americans, it's hard for us to be able to bring together something that's perfectly compatible, but in our culture and minds is not, and that's fatherhood and fear. Fatherhood and fear. Um, father, fathers are no longer feared as they have been in, in ages past. Um, because fathers have abdicated, fathers' authority has been taken away from them in many respects. And so what's to fear? He's just a, he's a, he's a bump on a log. And yet, when we see the gloriousness of God in heaven, who is a father, and his utter holiness, then fear is the only proper response to that God, to that father, fear. And so... Again, he, he, he makes that point. We should particularly walk in fear of offending him who will be sanctified, who will be held as holy in all that draw near to him. So that's a brief 
exposition of the verse, which I think is clear. There's not much that needs to be said about verse 17. All right, God is a judge who will judge each man according to his works, therefore live in fear. What I'm supposed to do now is assure you that this verse doesn't really apply to you because of Philippians 3.9. Right? And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right? And so if, if we're saved by faith then, and, and our sins are removed from us as far as east is from west, then why continue on in fear of the Lord? And, and that is true. We, we are, our, righteousness is not, uh, our righteousness is not that which we develop. It's that which comes from God. Right? We affirm that. That is true. No man is saved by the keeping of the law because the law was not meant to save man by the keeping of it. But here's the rub. No man is sanctified without the law. And a man must be sanctified or else he will not see God. So the cheap gracers of our age have trained you to think that Christians must not get all hung up on law keeping and obedience and the like. And to the contrary, says Peter, because God will judge all men according to their works. Even Christians who have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. They are called to live lives of fear on, during the time of their stay on the earth. Now with that, let's turn to see this in action in the life of Peter from the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke 5. Luke 5 says this, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boats. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And now note what happens. And this is why I went to this passage. But when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. 
From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So these fishermen, uh, most of the apostles were working class men. Many of them were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, uh, his brother, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, also possibly Jude, um, also called Thaddeus, Philip, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas could all have been fishermen. Here recorded for us is a typical day in the life of fishermen. The fish do not bite every day. Right? We've, many of us have learned that uh, very painfully. Peter, James, and John had returned to the shore of the Lake of Galilee without any fish, so they are washing their nets, removing the stones and debris that would have collected, uh, mending any breaks. No doubt they have, they've become exhausted because of the work, because unproductive fishing is much more exhausting than pulling up a large haul of fish when the adrenaline kicks in. And while they're doing this work of washing the nets, crowds are gathering along the shore in order to hear Jesus speak the word of God, as it says in verse 1. And so Jesus, seeing two boats, gets into one of them, Peter's boat, and begins teaching the crowds from, from a seated position in the boat. He uses the boat as his pulpit, right? No doubt this would have helped both with the view and with the acoustics, And Jesus finishes preaching, teaching the word of God to the people and begins speaking directly to Simon Peter. And he he goes to the apostle Peter and he gives him a command. Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Now don't forget that Jesus had prepared Peter for this command. The whole previous day and night had been preparing Peter Peter had not been allowed by God's providence to catch a single fish, and that was as much God's doing as was the coming haul of fish, right? The, the drought precedes the rain, and the wandering precedes the arrival. The hunger pangs precede the day of feasting. God's no precedes God's yes. And so accepting that no is the mark of deep faith. Understanding that times of drought and wandering and hunger and no catch are preparing us for something different. In some sense, the whole life of Christians is this way, right? Scripture refers to believers as strangers and aliens in this world. It refers to believers as those who have citizenship elsewhere, right? Who are awaiting their arrival in their home city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And yet for the time being, They are supposed to be nights where we don't catch any fish. There will be nights of suffering, throwing up and dry heaving all night long. For you dear women who are pregnant and have difficulties with it. There will be nights of loss, saying goodbye to loved ones. There will be nights of the loss of jobs and, and property and reputation. There will be days and nights of confusion and loneliness and depression, but then they'll be followed by days of a great haul of fish. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten and creeping locust, the stripping locust and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. During the long nights of no catch, it may be your tendency, as it is mine, to doubt the word of God, the promises of good things to come. You know them intellectually, 
right? You know the promises. I can flip to the back of my Bible, and the editors put a promises from the Bible section in, in my edition. And yet it just doesn't sink down into your heart, those verses. Yeah, yeah, Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. Yeah, yeah. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Yeah. Right. That sort of attitude, though common, is sin. It's sin because it, first of all, doubts that God is present in our suffering and in those no-catch days. Right. Second, it doubts the power of God to make the next day the day of great haul. And third, it doubts the goodness of God that he is a father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. And fourth, it discounts the fact that he is a father who does what? He disciplines his children and expects them to fear him. But to return to that first reason, have you heard people say that was a God thing? Do you say that yourself? I don't. I've heard it. That was a God thing. Now, people only use that phrase when they have had one of their prayers answered precisely as they had prayed or generally when something good happens. The night when Peter and James and John caught no fish, that was a God thing. The day you lost your job, had no way to provide for your family, that was a God thing. Right? The day you lost your friend because you called out his sin, that was a God thing. The day you were diagnosed with MS, that was a God thing. The day your apartment burnt to the ground, that was a God thing. And that day was preparing you for the day of feasting, for the day of no losses, for the day of joy. Right? Peter got this because look what he wrote in his letter many years later. Right back, um, we started. We were in chapter one, but in chapter four, Peter writes, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on. What's the next word? Rejoicing." Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Now how does Peter respond to the command from Jesus? He responds with immediate faith. He does mention the previous night, right? And the fact that they didn't catch anything. He does throw that in. But he doesn't plead out. He doesn't plead out of Jesus' command. He says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. So obedience by Peter is, is particularly difficult because of the previous night. And so his response is wonderful faith. I will do as you say. Then he had to turn and convince James and John to go along with him. That may have been harder to do. He convinced himself, it may have been harder to convince them. But there was something about the authority with which Jesus spoke that caused Peter to call him master and also caused him to immediately obey this command. It is hard to obey Jesus after the long, fruitless night. 
It's hard to obey Jesus the morning after the hardest nights, but that is the example that we see in Peter. He hears, he goes. Ryle, J.C. Ryle writes on this. He says, we are meant to learn the blessing of ready, unhesitating obedience to every plain command of Christ. The path of duty may sometimes be hard and disagreeable. The wisdom of the course we propose to follow may not be apparent to the world, but none of these things must move us. We are not to confer with flesh and blood. We are to go straight forward when Jesus says go and do a thing boldly, unflinchingly, and decidedly when Jesus says do it. We are to walk by faith and not by sight and believe that what we see now, what we see not now to be right and reasonable, we shall see hereafter. So acting, we shall never find in the long run that we are losers. So acting, we shall find sooner or later that we reap a great reward. When did Peter catch the great haul of fish? When did he catch the great haul of fish after he obeyed Jesus' command? When will you see the desire of your heart granted after you obey Jesus' commands? Jesus, as you know, said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So obedience is love to God. Obedience is love to God, nothing less. In this passage in Luke, we're shown the love of Peter, though still new, for Jesus and the fruitfulness of that loving obedience. Is this not what Jesus meant when when he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, food, drink, clothing, whatever you need, will be added to you. So Peter obeys, he loves, and the fruitfulness of his obedience is overwhelming. They catch so many fish when they cast the, the nets over the boat that the nets are breaking and the boats are beginning to sink. This is a, this is a miracle. Right? The drought is over. The rains have begun to fall. And not just a, a few sprinkles. This is a downpour of Noahic proportions. The blessings of God Almighty have come upon Peter. Think of their rejoicing. Think of their eyes bulging out of their heads. Think of their, uh, their hooting and hollering as they're trying to get these nets up. Right? Think of the fact that they are so overwhelmed with the catch that it probably took a few minutes for them to figure out that their boat was so low in the water that it was going to go down. Right? That's the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on display before their very eyes. And this is very important. How does Peter respond? He's afraid. He's afraid. He knows... He's in the presence of God. He falls at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's not said. He's not sort of got a half smile on his face when he says that. Go away from me. You know, I'm a sinful man. This is not him joking about it. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. His response is like Adam's after the fall when he hid himself. Like the nation of Israel when God spoke from the mountain, said, Now 
Then why should we die? For the great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. Like Isaiah in the temple in the presence of God's glory, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like the tax collector who was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Like the Apostle John who, when he stood in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, fell at his feet like a dead man. This is how all should respond to the presence of God. This fear is the baseline of the Christian life. This fear of God is the baseline of the Christian life. John Calvin said, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Peter, when in the presence of Jesus, having seen his great power, is overwhelmed with his insignificance, yes, but he is also traumatized by his sinfulness. He's not just feeling insignificant, he's feeling dirty. He knows he stands in the presence of holiness and therefore pronounces woe upon himself just as Isaiah did. He tells Jesus, in a sense, that his presence is unbearable. Peter understood two things really quickly. God is glorious and I am not. God is holy and I am not. God is God and I am not. There's a form of idolatry in the church today that rejects such truth. It diminishes God's glory and exalts man's sinfulness. It says Jesus is holy and so am I. Jesus is glorious and so am I. Jesus is God and so am I. Imagine this passage as written by many of today's church leaders. Instead of Peter falling before Jesus, confessing his sinfulness, he'd have started babbling about God being a God of love. And a God of acceptance and tolerance and acceptance and tolerance and love. Right? Peter, were he following the doctrines of today's church, would have said things like, Oh, Jesus, God of love and acceptance, give me a hug. Bro. Come closer. Don't be afraid. Jesus, don't be afraid of me. Peter would have spoken like the, the, uh, a few years ago, the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Upper South Carolina said a few, a few years ago that the, when, the, when the church was deciding to bless same-sex unions, it's part of our journey as faithful Christians to wrestle with questions about the intersection of the world and our faith. Peter would have said, Jesus, chill, dude, let's wrestle with the intersection of the world and faith. Peter would have said, all right, let's talk. You can be my God if I can be my master. And Peter would have said, lean in, Jesus, let me teach you. The doctrine of, of man's sinfulness is dispensed with, set 
upon a shelf as a relic of a bygone era or an age, then faith is dead. The self becomes the standard of holiness, the God to be worshipped as the self and the faith. And faith is useless and the idea of fearing God, the idea of fearing God does not compute. If you are a God unto yourself, the idea of fearing God does not make any sense. But those who know God, as the multitude of the examples in Scripture show us, are those who know that when they are in God's presence, the appropriate response, the only response that understands him as he has revealed himself in the word and in our hearts by the Spirit is Peter's response. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why? Because we carry our sinfulness into his presence. Every man must respond this way because every man is a sinner, having fallen short of the glory of God, and God is holy. You cannot be a Christian and have not had this experience. You cannot be a Christian and not be aware of your sins. Peter's experience is the indispensable condition of the Christian faith. And to those who fear then, Jesus says to them, fear not. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5 in Luke. Jesus responds to Peter's words saying, do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. Do not fear. But to those who do not fear, Jesus says, fear Declare this, this is from Jeremiah 5, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear, do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea and the eternal decree so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. Those who fear God and bow their knees in reverence before Jesus Christ will, like Peter, hear then, do not fear, for I am with you. Those who will not fear will one day be so afraid that they will be talking to rocks and mountains, asking if they'd fall on them and hide them from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So those who fear the Lord will know his peace, as Peter did, and those who fear God will have a mediator who whispers, fear not, into their ears and who whispers, mine into the ears of the Almighty Father. And Peter said, go away from me, Lord. And Jesus responds, I will never leave you. Those who don't fear the Lord will never hear Jesus say, do not fear. Their pride always says, approach me, Lord. And Jesus responds, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
So dear brothers and sisters, Peter exhorts us to live a life of fear and gives us an example of fearing God in this this time early in his calling. The fear of God is an appropriate response to his glorious majesty. It is apprehending his eternal holiness and trembling in the presence of it, even as we enjoy and rest in our salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no contradiction there. This is the, the, the bipolar life of the Christian. Peter can say just a few verses earlier that Christians have obtained as a result of their faith the salvation of their souls, and a few, and then a few verses later he can say, God will judge, therefore, therefore conduct yourselves in the fear of God during this time of your stay on earth. Why? The answer, which we'll dig into next time, is this. Your salvation was not cheap. It required the shedding of the blood of the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And because it wasn't cheap, because it was costly, fear God. Because it cost the Father, his Son, fear the Father. Right? This is appropriate, and this does not militate against joy. The greatest joy you will have in your life is when, instead of indulging your sin, you tremble before the Lord in fear. That is joy. That is, that is gloriously hopeful. 